0: to Exodus chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2, by God's grace we're going to get through this whole chapter this morning, we'll see what happens, Exodus 2, let me read it. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch, and then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse a child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew One of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and said to him, and and hid him in the sand. And he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and, and said, Surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by, the, by a well. Now, the, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and filled the troughs of water... Uh, filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, Why have you come back so soon today? So they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses was willing to dwell with the man and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son and he he named him Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. The title of this sermon is An Unlikely Savior, An Unlikely Savior. As we, see Christ, as we see Moses this morning, we will see that he is a shadow of the substance of Christ. So we're going to see like a, a preview to the character and the nature of Christ. I desire this morning, church, that you would treasure Christ as a result of this time. That you would treasure him as your compassionate deliverer. Because that's what he is. God's chosen deliverer for you. When somebody tries to get a job at a company, usually they have to submit a resume. On that resume, they'll describe... Their past history, what what jobs they've had before, um, and anything in their past that might qualify them for the task at hand that they're applying for. The employer will, if they, if it's especially if it's for a very special role, if it's a, a role with uh, children, as a teacher, or if it's anything that has to do with a school uh, there will be a background check and so the, the employer will not only take the applicant's word for their qualifications but the employer will also go back into that person's history and see if there's anything that disqualifies them for their task, for the job here in chapter 2, we're given somewhat of a resume of Moses. Moses is going to be the man that God will use to deliver the the sons of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. He's going to be God's instrument of deliverance and salvation. And so before he gets to that, though, the author wants to introduce us to this man Moses and show that he is indeed qualified for the job. Now, throughout this chapter, we're going to see qualifications, but we also see some disqualifications, some things that that are big question marks or red flags on Moses' resume. But we'll see here that Moses wasn't perfect. He wasn't a perfect deliverer. He's not a perfect Savior. He was never meant to be. He was meant to point to the perfect deliverer Amen. to give us a preview of the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. So picking up from chapter 1, Pharaoh had mistreated God's people, Israel. Pharaoh went from mistreatment to slavery to infanticide, which is the killing of infants, to genocide, which is a national murdering of these people, this nation, Israel. And in the midst of that suffering... A child is born. We're going to see here uh, this morning that Moses is God's chosen one. And he is God's chosen one as his chosen instrument, his chosen vessel of the compassion of God. So we're going to see Moses, but we're going to see behind Moses, as it were, God's compassion. So this morning, I would invite you, I believe God would call you to receive God's chosen one and receive God's compassion. Those are our two points this morning. Receive God's chosen one and receive God's compassion. Now, first of all, the bulk of of this time will be towards the first point. Receive God's chosen one. We see that the chapter here lays side by side the unlikeliness of Moses to be the deliverer, and also the undeniable fact that God chose Moses to be deliverer. Moses is both unlikely and not the first choice of most people, or the obvious one, but yet at the same time, he is God's chosen one, and it becomes undeniable by the end of this chapter. First of all, I want to just overview the unlikeliness of Moses, and I, because I believe the emphasis is given on the fact that God chose him. First of all, in verse 1, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bore a son. Moses... Was of the house of Levi. Now, Simeon and Levi were sons of Jacob, Israel. Simeon and Levi were also the two most shamed sons of Israel up to this point. Their violence, their vengeance in Genesis 34 is displayed against Shechem and the Hivites because of what Shechem did to their sister Dinah. It was a backhanded revenge that Levi did. We won't spend time there, but because of that history, because Simeon and Levi were deceptive, violent, vengeful, Men, when Israel went to go bless his sons towards the end of his life in Genesis 49, when he comes to Simeon and Levi, he says this: Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Basically, you won't have a home to call your own. You will borrow from other people's land to have a place of your own. And it's all because of their anger, their their cruel violence. God hates that. This is Moses' lineage. This is his family. Doubly so because notice his... Father and his mother were both a son and a daughter of Levi. So doubly, he was of this tribe. And we'll see that come into play a little later on when he has an encounter with an Egyptian. Not only this, but um, Moses was a hidden baby. Verse 2. When she saw that he was beautiful and she hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. And she put the basket, she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Moses, at the beginning of his life, was a hidden baby, not a celebrated one. He was left in the Nile here, it says, and that was a somewhat common practice of the time. It wasn't totally foreign to the ears of the hearers to whom Moses wrote this. This was a fairly common practice. It would be much like today uh, if somebody has a child and they leave the newborn at the doorstep of a fire department or a hospital or a church. They, They... Don't in a sense want the child, but they do also at the same time want the best for the child. So they hand over the child to somebody that they believe can care for them. They hand it over to adoption. The putting a baby into the Nile was, in a sense, common to their time, and it was like putting the child up for adoption. So he was this was his beginning. Hidden, left in the Nile, up for adoption. Verse 6 When he was found, he was found crying, and it says that Pharaoh's daughter had pity on him. Verse 6. She had pity on him. So not only did he begin his life a hidden baby, but he began his life in pity. He was an object of pity. Not praise. Think of the contrast between this kind of beginning of a life and the life of Pharaoh's son. Born in extravagance, born celebrated, born with a, you could say, a a silver spoon in his mouth. This is not how Moses began. He was a hidden baby, he was an object of pity. Verse 10 also, the child grew, it says, and, and she, that is Moses' mother, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, Pharaoh's daughter's son. And Pharaoh's daughter, she named him Moses. Pharaoh, or excuse me, Moses, it says here, grew up in a home, in a family not his own. In a culture where heritage, national identity, national pride was so central to life and so incredibly important for your own identity, Moses grew up an outsider. Not connected to his heritage. Not growing up in the customs of his nation, of his people. Verse 12, also, when Moses grew up, we see his old heritage, his family line coming out. When he goes out and sees what his people are going through, the Hebrews, the Israelites... He looks this way and that as he sees an Egyptian abusing an Israelite, a Hebrew. He looks this way and that and he, when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. No trial, no conversation. No pleading for mercy. No justice, really. This isn't justice. We see Moses... Here was a hot-tempered and violent man. Much like his ancestor, Levi. And then when his actions come to light in verse 14, the, 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 his deed is known. The fact that he killed the Egyptian becomes known. It says, verse 14, Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. He became afraid. Of what he had done. Instead of owning up to what he had done, not being afraid of it, not being ashamed of the fact that he defended his his brother, his brethren, he became afraid and he ran. Not only this, but as he runs away, he ends up in Midian. And through the course of events, he ends up at Raul's house, who is Jethro. He ends up at his house, and he has to stay with him in order to survive. Verse 21, Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Moses was a sojourner. And in fact, when he had a child, he named his child, it says in verse 22, Gershom, because I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. That's how he viewed himself, a sojourner. Somebody without a home. A foreigner. In need of other people with other people's houses in order to survive. With all these things about Moses, it's easy to say, well, I've looked at your resume and you are unqualified. You don't really exude this aura of deliverer. Your resume does not shout forth, savior of a nation, leader. Yet, this is just the man that God chose. You see, God doesn't have anything else to work with in this world except sinners and losers, You're, myself included. So we see also, even though we see these, these blights on the character of Moses, these these blemishes on his resume throughout the chapter we also see that it is undeniable that god still chose moses though so let's go back in 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 detail through the passage verse 1 verse 1 we see that god sovereignly chose moses God sovereignly orchestrated the events of Moses' life to make it obvious that this was God's chosen one. Verse 1, even though he was from the family of Levi with that past, the tribe of Levi would eventually become the only people allowed into the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. The audience to whom this book was written are are the audience that already have the priesthood, the Levites. They already have the sacrificial system of Leviticus uh, being enacted. That's part of their normal practice already. That's part of their life. So when they hear Levi... They think of the tribe of Levi that is constantly daily entering into God's temple, God's tabernacle on their behalf, offering sacrifices to God on behalf of the nation. So for them, there's this mix of, yeah, there's that past, but right now we couldn't approach God without this tribe. The tribe of Levi came to have special access into God's presence, and Moses eventually would be the man to stand on Mount Sinai, remember? He would stand on Mount Sinai after he delivered God's people out of Egypt. Moses was the one that went up into the cloud, up into the presence of God with the rest of the nation trembling at the foot of the mountain. And so, being the son of two Levites. What's implied here is that Moses was actually qualified for that task. To stand in the presence of God, to receive the law and instruction of God, and to give God's word to his people. He was qualified. Verse 2, when Moses was born, Moses' mother saw that he was beautiful, it says. Beautiful, good, Pleasing, it's also translated. It's interesting because the wording here, when it says in verse 2, when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him. That is, that she kept him safe and didn't kill him, as Pharaoh's instructions were to. She saw that he was beautiful. The, The phrasing there is almost identical to the phrasing in Genesis 1. In the creation account, where God made the universe step by step. And after each phase of creation, God saw that it was good. Genesis 1 verse 4, God saw that the light, when he created the light, God saw that the light was good. Verse 10, God saw that it, the land and the seas, was good. Verse 12, God saw that the vegetation, that it was good. Verse 18, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21, God saw that it was good. Verse 25, God saw that it was good. Verse 31, at the very end, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, it's no mistake that the beginning of the story of Moses has this kind of similarity to the beginning of the story of creation. Acts Seven twenty, speaking about this event says that moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of god not so much his mother but of god you see the apostles in the new testament made that connection when moses or excuse me when when moses's mother saw that he was good, beautiful, pleasing, we see that it is almost identical to how God saw creation. And so when God made Moses and chose Moses, it is as if through his mother he sees Moses as good, pleasant. This was God's chosen one. God chose Moses to be the deliverer of God's people. Not only this, but verse 3. Look at verse 3. She put him in a a wicker basket and put the basket into the Nile. Now, of course, this is an act of faith in God. Hebrews 11.23 says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, Because they saw that he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Speaking here of the faith of Moses' parents. That they didn't care what the king said. If the king said, kill your son, they said, no. They feared God and they believed God would protect their child if they would place him carefully into the Nile. It's amazing because the, when it says that she got him a wicker basket, this word for basket is actually rare in the Old Testament. Very rare. In fact, it only is used here and in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Now, what happens in Genesis 6 through 9? It's Noah and the flood, the ark. It's the same word. In those chapters and in this passage are the only two places in all of the Old Testament that this word is used. So yes, we are to make that connection. Moses was God's chosen instrument of deliverance that reality is linked to this ark in the flood as God's chosen instrument of deliverance. And in Genesis 6 through 9, what what are God's people being delivered from? The judgment and wrath of God upon sin. And what is Moses going to deliver God's people from? The judgment and wrath of God. And the cruel treatment of sin. The cruel effects of sin. Moses is God's chosen instrument of deliverance. Verse 4 through 10 in this passage. In verses 4 through 10, the narration, the storytelling slows down, and it's like step by step, detail by detail. Notice, the sister stood, Moses' sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. And so we're, it's as if we're, we're seeing what this woman saw. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens alongside the Nile. Notice the detail. She saw the basket among the reeds. She sent her maid She brought it to her. She opened it. She saw the child. And behold, the child was crying. She had pity on him. See how it just slows down step by step? We're being drawn into the drama here. This is is the highlight of the passage. And and it's amazing because this passage is, is dripping with irony. Notice what happens. When she sees this child, instead of saying, this is a Hebrew, I have to kill it, right? I have to obey dad. I should kill this child. No, what what does she do? She has pity on him. And then the irony just gushes out. Verse 7, his sister, Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, comes out from behind the reeds, it seems like, and offers some help. Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that... She may nurse the child for you. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. And who did she get? Moses' mom. Moses' mom had originally given up Moses to God, entrusting him to the Lord. And what does God do? He gives Moses back and says, I'm taking care of him you've had faith in me and i'm going to reward that by letting you have some more time with your son and so she nurses this child raises him to the point where it's now time for his education and he goes back to egypt there's this irony here that instead of obeying the edict of death of murder A Pharaoh, Pharaoh's very daughter, the one who you think would obey those edicts and or at least get somebody to kill the child. If anybody would have that kind of power and that ability and that that motivation to kill this child on sight, it was her. But because of the Lord's sovereignty, Pharaoh's daughter doesn't kill him. Rather, she saves his life. And not only this, Moses' sister steps in to help. Not only this, Moses' mother is chosen to nurse. And not only that, she gets paid. (laughs) She gets paid to do that. Mothers, would you like to get paid to raise your children? It's a priceless task. Mm. (laughs) I heard it. But the reality is that to raise a child, you can't put a price tag on it, right? If, we were, if you were to be compensated mothers, right? If we were to compensate you for your work as, for raising a child, you'd be the richest people in the room, right? You'd earn more than Bill Gates and all those guys. Because it's a priceless task. And it's a very demanding task. But nonetheless, Moses' mother gets paid for raising and nursing her own child. What irony. What power of God. Don't you see God's hand? God is showing, this is my chosen instrument of deliverance. The very child that Pharaoh's edict of death was intended to kill actually grew up in his very house. Moses grew up under the protection of the same man who threatened his very life moments earlier. Wow. Words of Psalm 2 truly come to bear and come to fruition here, where it says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. But in verse 4 it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. And it's as if our God orchestrating these events I could imagine with a sanctified imagination God in the heaven laughing. Pharaoh, you thought you could kill my people. You know what? I'm going to have you raise the very one who will save my people. Wow. What power of God. But as, as Moses grows up, we, we see his character start to come to light. And there's these glimmers of righteousness. In verse 11 and 12, when Moses grows up, he goes out to his brethren and he looks at their hard labors and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he steps in to deliver his brethren. Strikes down the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. Moses saw here the Israelites, the Hebrews, as his brethren. Even though he was raised in Pharaoh's house, he still saw his people as his people. He didn't let that go. So there's character there, right? There's, there's loyalty, not to just his nationality, not just to his ethnicity, but to the God of their people. To the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we see that in action, we see this loyalty to God, to his people in action, where he sees his brother suffering and he acts to deliver. Moses here identifies with, he takes the side of his people. In verse 13 through 15, he even understands that mistreatment between brethren is wrong. Not only does he step in when you know, a heavy-handed Egyptian is treating a Hebrew wrong, he's, he steps in when a Hebrew is treating another Hebrew wrongly. He went out the next day, verse 13, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? So he understands justice and he understands righteousness here. And so what, what's happening is our, our view of Moses, our opinion of Moses, is to be elevated in our, in our minds and eyes. We are to think highly of Moses at this point, even though he's not perfect. Certainly he's not. But he is God's chosen instrument. God is, has been giving him these understandings, even though he's raised in a godless a polytheistic uh, nation and taught their ways, he still understands the righteousness of God. He understands the difference between right and wrong. So we see the character of Moses shining here a bit. But nonetheless, the Hebrews that he tried to uh, seek peace among, he tried to reconcile them. They didn't receive his help, of course. And so Moses flees from Pharaoh's anger. Then we go into Midian. He flees to Midian and ends up at a well there. And Jethro, rules. daughters are there at the well, watering their flock, at least trying to, and some other shepherds, uh, these scoundrels, really, As Moses went to this foreign land, he's confronted with a situation where there's these strangers, these ladies being mistreated by these shepherds. And the shepherds were rugged men; they were crooked men. They were the most trusted. It wasn't the, it wasn't uh, you know a highly viewed profession in that time. Shepherds were looked down on, treated as dirty by the Egyptians, because of their reputation. But Moses, he steps in, and he goes on now, not to just helping his brethren, but also to help perfect strangers. Moses delivered these seven daughters, and then kindly helped them to feed their flock or water their flock. And on top of that, in verse 20 through 22, when, the, uh, when these daughters go back to their father, they tell him all that happened, and he says, where, where is this guy? Where is he then? Why is, it, why is he not here? Why have you left him behind? Invite him to have something to eat. And then as Moses is, becomes willing to dwell with Raul, with Jethro, Jethro, gives his daughter Zipporah to Moses. This man welcomed Moses into his own house. Points to Moses' credibility. That Moses wasn't a creep. He wasn't a questionable man. He had he had character. He had uh, integrity. The fact that a stranger would welcome this man into his own home with seven daughters says a lot. And the fact that he would hand over one of his daughters to marry this man says even more. Now, Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 fills in some details here for us. 21 through 29 says... After he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learnings of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. A little more detail is filled in there. Moses was a man of power in word and deed, verse 22. He was a strong man. He was was an educated man. he was strong in words he was well educated that is he wasn't a weakling he wasn't a pushover and even then at that point it says in verse 25 he, Moses himself understood the need of the israel the, the israelites need of deliverance he understood that his brethren needed to be delivered verse 25 And when the Hebrew men rejected uh, Moses to be their ruler and judge and deliverer, he was actually God's chosen one. A little farther down in Acts 7, verse 35 and 36. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Remember, who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is God's man. This is God's chosen one. The very one whom his own people rejected was the one whom God chose. This is the same man who led Israel out of slavery and cared for them for 40 years in the wilderness. He was a leader. Yet, this Moses was not the main character. The next verse in Acts 7 This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Even Moses understood. God has qualified for me for this task. He has called me to this task to be a prophet, to be a deliverer of God's people, but I am not the main character. There's somebody else that God is pointing forward to. Now, this one who God was pointing forward to is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Moses pointed forward to the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate ruler, the ultimate judge, the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ. But like Moses, he was an unlikely Savior. Isaiah 53, 1-3 says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that this Messiah, he grew, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, that is, gaze upon him with, with reverence, nor appearance, that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Like Moses, Christ was not the one that most people would have picked to be the savior of all mankind. Yet, It is this very Christ, Christian, of whom God speaks in Matthew 12, 18 through 21. He says, Behold my servant. There on the Mount of Transfiguration, he says, Behold my servant. This is the one whom I have chosen, God says. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. This one, not Moses. This one, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. But a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the chosen one of God. Moses was just a precursor. Christ is all qualified for for being the savior of your soul, friend. He is qualified to be your master and your Lord. He is qualified to provide deliverance from the bondage of sin. He is qualified to tell you what to do on a daily basis, Christian. He is God's servant, God's chosen one. And notice that he's not a harsh master, but rather a battered reed he won't break off. We like to do gardening in our yard here. And sometimes there's just limbs on a tree or a plant that's just hanging over and it's in the dirt and it's destined to die. And we don't have compassion on that plant. We cut it off. We cut off that limb, that branch. Right? It's gonna die anyway. Why spend the time to, to to put a stake in the ground and get that branch off the ground and tie it up? Why take the trouble? Just cut it off and let the rest of the plant thrive. It's not the way our Lord treats us. Are you battered this morning? Are you battered by the the the, the cruelty of sin? Are you battered and, and are you a smoldering wick? It says, a smoldering wick he will not put out. That, that wick on a candle that's just at the end of its life. And it's no good for light, it's no good for heat. If, you have, if you've ever had that kind of a candle or burned a candle all the way down and it's just barely smoldering at the end. And, and most of us think, well, I'll, I'll just put it out now and, and just move on to the next candle. Right? God doesn't do that. Are you smoldering this morning? Are you just barely holding it together? Is that you? He will not put you out. He will not extinguish you and just put you out of your misery. It's not the kind of Savior He is. He's a compassionate God. And He comes to you. If you're a, a battered reed or a smoldering wick, He has mercy and compassion upon people just like you. And He will uphold you, Christian. Do you believe that? Do you believe that He is the chosen one of God to uphold you? Or do you think that God has chosen other means to uphold you? Just escape, just escape your situation, just run away. Has God chosen that method to, to deliver you? Just take this pill, just drink this bottle. Just go to this, go to those friends. Is that God's chosen instrument to uphold you? Absolutely not. Run to Christ. He is God's chosen instrument. He will uphold you. When you think you have nothing left, He will uphold you. That's what He's come to do. It is this very compassion that is throughout the passage of Exodus 2. Go back with me to Exodus 2. This is our last point this morning. Receive God's compassion. At the very end of the chapter, it says Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Here in this passage, God is first introduced directly. Of course, he was mentioned in passing with the midwives and how they feared God and how God rewarded them in chapter 1. But now God actually enters into the drama of Exodus. And we'll see that even more so in the next chapter with the burning bush. But about 40 years go by since the time Moses fled Egypt, went to Midian. 40 years go by. Another pharaoh passes away. Four decades of hard labor and slavery for the Hebrew slaves. Four decades, remember, of bitter life. Remember that treatment in chapter 1? Four decades of that bitter life where maybe death is sweeter than this because it's so bad. Four decades of this kind of living. And what do we see from God's people? We see that they sigh. They sigh out. Their sighing reaches God. And this this word for sighing is exactly what comes from a breaking heart in Ezekiel 21.6. This is a sound that comes from a breaking heart. Not only this, but they groaned under the weight. This groaning is used in the Old Testament for the sound that comes out of a wounded man. So their hearts were breaking and they were wounded physically and spiritually. That's what sin does. It will always break your heart. Young person, you think that that relationship is going to is going to give you happiness? You think that that other person is going, to, is going to treat you right, but they don't know the Lord? Sin will always break your heart. They will break your heart. Don't go there. You will end up sighing and groaning out to God because you've made wrong choices. Nonetheless, their cry for help, it says, rose up to God. God heard their groaning. It's not just audibly that he, he could hear it in the distance, you know. It's not just that, but it's that he paid attention is the wording. He listened to their cry is the idea. Christian, there are no lost prayers with God. There are no tears shed that are wasted with God. Do you believe that? God hears you, Christian. All those sleepless nights as you cry out to Him. He hears you. He does. And it might take time for Him to act. Like it did for these people. It might take some time for Him to save your children to change your spouse, to heal your ailment. It might take time for you to, to get that job. It might take time for you to have victory over that sin. But He hears you. He hears you. Years might go, might go by, but Christian, do not stop calling out to God. Don't stop it. Because look what it says. He heard them and he remembered his covenant, it says. He heard and then he remembered. This doesn't mean that he forgot his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not what that means. To remember here is to think about, to dwell on. No promise is ever forgotten by God. This wording is used in Genesis 8 where God remembered Noah in the ark. And then he caused the floodwaters to subside. God didn't just forget about Noah. And, you know, Days and months went by and one day God's like, oh, that's right. Noah's in the ark. It's not that. He thought about him. His attention went to him directly. So in here, in this passage, as the cries of God's people come up to him in in heaven, as it were, and he hears their cries and their groaning and their sighing, he remembers his covenant. The covenant that he made with his people. He made a promise to them. And when God remembers something, there is always a connection to Him acting. According to that promise, according to that remembrance. What are the promises? Well, Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation, He promised to Abraham. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 15, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, which actually happened. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. To your descendants I have, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as to the great river, the river Euphrates. Genesis 22, 17 and 18, God promises again, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is what God remembered. And you can imagine, 40 years go by, another 40 years top of the other 400 years that has already gone by. And it seems like, God, you forgot your promise. Didn't you say, the one who curses you, I will curse? Well, we're being cursed right now, God. We've been being cursed for hundreds of years. Where is, where is our Vindication? God never forgot his promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was always there. It it just wasn't time yet. Christian, God has made you promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you. That if you confess your sin, he will forgive you and he'll cleanse you. That he is with you always, even to the end of the age. That if you obey your parents, there is great reward. That if you love your wife and and submit to your husband and honor your husband, there will be harmony in the marriage. He has made promises to you, Christian. That if if you seek his kingdom and his righteousness first, all these other things will be added to you. He's made promises to you and he has not forgotten them. Might feel like it. But maybe the reality is that you've forgotten his promises, not him. Verse 25 God saw and he took notice. Now, these words communicate concern and and, and pity, compassion of God. And really, the author has been leading up to this point. Throughout all of chapter 2, we've seen glimpses of compassion, remember? Verse 6, Pharaoh's daughter had compassion on the helpless state of the baby Moses. Yet, he was not, she was not willing to step in to do the hard work, and she handed off the baby to his mother to care for him. But in verse 11 also, Moses was himself moved with compassion to defend his brother, seeing the mistreatment of his own people. However... He tried to do it in secret, and he hid the evidence. However, God's compassion, God's pity, God's care for his people is not mixed with indifference. His mercy is not commingled with shame. God, too, had compassion in this chapter. He did. Yet, unlike Pharaoh's daughter, God was actually willing to take personal action to free his people from harm. And God had pity on the state of the Hebrews, yet unlike Moses, he desired to show the whole world what he would do for the sake of his people, not hide it. That is how God is with you. Matthew 20. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men Sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, he cried out. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Notice they cried out. And the crowds generally told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and he called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened and moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Friend, what would you have Jesus do for you? He's asking you that today. If you don't know the Lord, you need to cry out to him. You need to understand that you are right now under the tyranny of sin. And you're not so much a victim because you like it. It's voluntary, actually, with us, right? If we're honest. We like it. And we don't want His deliverance. But He has to show you that you cannot save yourself. And He has to get you to the point where you cry out, have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy, please. And he comes to you today, friend. And he says, what would, I, what would you have me do for you? What do you want? Amen. It's a blank check, isn't it? Amen. It's a blank check. What is your greatest need, friend? Amen. What's your greatest need this morning? Your answer should be, set me free from sin. Set me free from the the tyranny of sin. The debt of the punishment of sin that I owe to God. Set me free from that, oh Lord. You'll cry out, set me free. Set my heart free to love you and to worship you. That's your cry. And Christian, this morning, are you going back to sin? Are you going back to Egypt? That's what, the, that's what the Israelites will do. They'll get saved out of Egypt and then they'll want to go back. And that's us. We want to go back, don't we? Christ comes to you this morning. He says, What do you want me to do for you this morning? Child of God, what would you have him do? You cry out to him, Oh, heal my heart, Lord. Forgive me my sin. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Set my heart free to love you and to worship you again. Do that for me, Lord. And he'll do it. It says he had compassion. And I love this. Look, move with compassion. He doesn't just say, okay, you're healed. No, what does he do? He touched their eyes. Oh, the touch of Christ. Christ can give life, can give you sight to see him the way he truly is. Cry out to him this morning. Let's pray. Let's pray. Stand with me as we pray. Oh, Lord. truly you are a compassionate God. Lord, we feel like those Israelites sometimes. Nothing's changing. We keep on crying out to you. Oh, Lord, help us to be faithful in our prayers, in our, in our cries for help and mercy, and for you to act. May we wait on your timing, Lord. And may, as we wait, Lord, may we be confident that Christ is the one to whom we should go. We shouldn't try and change things on our own. We shouldn't try and manipulate our circumstance or the people around us. We shouldn't give up and just walk away. No, Lord. Christ is enough. He's your chosen instrument. That means that he's qualified. Nobody else, nothing else is qualified to do this. To heal us the way we need to be healed. To shepherd us the way we need to be shepherded. To save us the way we need to be saved. Nobody else can do this, Lord. So we come to you. And we ask, do your work. Hear the cries of your people. And act. Act, Lord. So you'll get the glory. It's all about you. you. There's no other reason for, this, for these Israelites to be in slavery but to that eventually you would get the glory in saving them. So Lord, there's no other reason for our heartaches today but that you would get the glory in them. May we trust you and love you through it all. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's sing.